Welcome to a special edition of the Speech Uncensored podcast. This podcast is built to provide insights and resources to speech and language pathologists working in the medical field. I am Leanne Porter, your host and medical SLP. I had the privilege of moderating a panel on the topic of providing teletherapy for adults. This talk was given during a free seven-hour live teletherapy boot camp provided by a partnership with SpeechTherapyPD.com and California Speech-Language Hearing Association. My three guests amazingly agreed with short notice to share their experience providing telehealth services to adults. I've gathered a list of resources and placed them in the show notes on SpeechUncensored.com, so be sure to check those out for information on telehealth platforms, therapy tools, COVID-19 resources, and more. Now it's time to hear from the panel, Dr. Joy Musser, Tina Babajanais, and Bill Connors. All right, so um, I'm so happy to be joined um, by three amazing SLPs who um, also work with adults. And um, I'd like to start with Joy. So if Joy could pop on and join me now, um, I'll follow that up with introducing Bill and Tina. So let's go ahead and have Joy introduce herself. Hi, Joy. Hi, Leanne. Can you see me or not yet? Not yet. Okay. But you can go ahead. Okay. And- well, hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Joy Musser. Um, I am a private Oh, well, it looks like... Okay, am I back on? Yes, you're back on. Oh my goodness, I got bumped off. So I'm Dr. Joy Musser. I have a private practice uh, called Musser Voice. And there's my video prompt. Okay, it's... I'm sorry, it's not letting me come on on video. This is, this is Shelly, the moderator. Is your camera, like, do you have a like a slide that closes your camera or turns it on? And no, off. it's, I'm getting the prompt to. Well, Joy, we'll go ahead and circle back to you. Let's go on to Bill and Bill, I'd like for you to pop on and introduce yourself real quick while Joy kind of works on her camera. Okay, it's working. Hello. Hi. Nice to see you all. You might hear more noises in the background because I've got, it's a crazy world in telepractice today. Um, platforms are crashing and I hope this one doesn't. So I'm Bill Connors. Um, I have uh, uh, started working, cut, cut my teeth in the adult treatment world way back when with the likes of Audrey Holland, Alvin Davis. So. We've been around a long time. Uh, started doing telepractice in 2005 when I left the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Uh, I focus on working with adults at our website, aphasiatoolbox.com. Done a lot of training in adult acquired kinds of problems. And because of that, started doing a lot of telepractice training uh, for speech therapists, I've trained a couple thousand. Awesome. All right. Thank you, Bill. Tina, go ahead and pop on and tell us a little bit about you and the work that you do in teletherapy, please. 
Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Tina Babajanians. Um, so I've been a clinician for 11 years. And the last three years, I switched over to um, working with the gender expansive community and providing um, voice and communication services to transgender folks. And it's all through the telepractice uh, platform. Excellent. All right. Well, let's go ahead and dive in. Um, I want to start off um, talking about the pros and cons of using teletherapy with adults. So um, my first question is, what are some limitations that exist when providing teletherapy to our adult clients? And specifically, I'm thinking about um, maybe some insurance considerations or licensing issues, um, technical problems, like something we might be familiar with right now. So um, Let's start with you, Bill, and then we'll kind of go down our list real quick. What do you have on that topic, Bill? Uh, do you want me to talk about that, all that stuff prior to a week ago or this current week? Because it's I all think, changed upside yeah. down. Yes, I think currently, like people who are now being in the position perhaps to need to reach out to their patient population in today's environment. Uh, starting with insurance. Um, <clears throat> Uh, at telepracticecommunity.com, we do a survey every year. And um, right now, 82% of therapy is being done in the schools because they're paying for it. Uh, a big discrimination against telepracticianers is third-party payments. Medicare uh, has not been paying for um, services done at a distance for rehab. So that has held back a lot of growth in the area of adult service provision at a distance. Um, I have seen documents online, uh, one of which suggested that Medicare would pay for services done at a distance uh, telepractice currently. Um, I, I, I don't want to know what to make of them. I don't know where they came from. It looks official. Uh, I've counseled thousands of telepractitioners, so I, I, I look at everything with a grain of salt. But it looks like perhaps if you're a, a Medicare provider, you could do that and bill. Um, the answer is when you get your money in your bank, I guess. Uh, likewise for um, HIPAA, um, we, you know, so many people have been conditioned that they are uh, like deer in the headlights when you say HIPAA. Um, and then I saw a document that said um, HIPAA, that the office, the, uh, I can't remember the name of the de department, but the government office that enforces HIPAA will not be prosecuting people in the near future um, relative to HIPAA. So that would throw HIPAA out the door for a little while anyway, till it knocks and comes back in, I guess. Those are two of the biggest updates uh, uh, in terms of limitations. Um, in terms of um, technology, the newer platforms, uh, Thera platform, Blink Session, Therapy Network. Uh, they're so modern and designed so well that there's just not, there's many, many less problems anymore, unless you're doing a big group um, or unless your client doesn't have great internet service or you're trying to use a Chromebook or something. Mm -hmm. So those newer products and even Zoom to a large extent um, really make it really, there's just, I mean, it used to be, you'd have a lot of technical problems, not anymore. It's 98% user error rather than the technology. 
Okay. Well, that's encouraging to hear. So then if something happens, it's my fault. <laughs> All right, Tina, do you have anything to add um, on that question about any limitations that exist in providing teletherapy to our adult patients and clients? The limitations I have experienced personally is that clients don't always have the same level of technology as the clinician does. And that's really just speaking to clients having the right bandwidth and internet. So I end up sometimes with a lot of dropped calls um, or dropped video calls. Um, so that can be a little bit frustrating. Um, other than that, uh, I, I'm private pay only, so I don't deal with insurance at the moment. Um, and then just getting the buy-in from my clients to be willing to use a platform like Zoom or Doxy.me because it's unfamiliar to them. A lot of people will ask, like, can we just Skype? Can we just FaceTime? Which right now, as it was just mentioned, um, HIPAA has sort of lifted the, the requirements for the moment. So it gives us a little bit more freedom to get in and perhaps get buy-in from the clients and then slowly transition them over to a platform that's more HIPAA compliant. Okay. All right. Do you, so, you uh, want me to address licensure at all? Yes. Now yeah, or later? yeah. Okay. Um, well, uh, we'd all like uh, ASHA to wave a magic wand and fix the licensure issue, but it ain't going to happen. Um, right now, according to the Constitution of the United States anyway, but because I, I train a lot of therapists from Canada, um, each state is responsible for the health care of its individuals. So each state has their own licensure law. That's not going to change. Um, uh, right now, it's none of, none of this has been litigated that I know. So we're all assuming things as we move forward. So the, uh, hi, Joy. Hi there. <laughs> Do you want to introduce her, Leanne, while I and I stop? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Hi, Joy. So glad you could join us. Go Hi. Ahead. Speaking of technology problems, this is one of them. <laughs> All right. Tell us a little bit about the work that you do. Um, so I have a private practice that focuses on voice feminization for trans females. Um, and I've been doing teletherapy for about four years now. Um, I also teach online college courses, so I've been doing the online environment for probably the past 10 years or so. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I'm experiencing some technical difficulties, which is probably something you're going to cover uh, the some of the cons of uh, this type of service. Mm -hmm. All right. And look, we can work through it. It's fine. <laughs> I know. I'm back. I probably joined and unjoined uh, 17 times. So I'm sorry to be so disruptive. All right. And Bill, so you were talking about the licensure for um, each state has its own area. Each state has its own area, uh, own licensure for a, a lot of professions, speech therapy being one of them. Um, uh, speech uh, telepractice is okay in every state. It's not like it's prohibited in any state. Um, some states have telepractice uh, wording in their law. Um, and uh, I, I, I personally am not for that. I, I, I think it just causes more problems for speech therapists than we need. Um, like Massachusetts, you have to have 10 hours of telepractice training before you start and then two hours every CEU um, session. 
Um, in any case, the conventional wisdom is you should be licensed in the state where you're, you are physically located and the state where your client is physically located. Um, and uh, one would think that would be the safest. Uh, the problem is which law do you follow? Um, that leaves a bit of a, of a conundrum. Um, you know, secondly, um, uh, uh, do, 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 the, uh, the, I guess second point, it hasn't been litigated, but that's the recommendation from ASHA and uh, from, from most people. And then when you start looking at other countries, it gets very ethereal, I guess, I don't know. All right, so kind of um, what I'm hearing is best practice right now is to have um, a license clearly in the state where you are practicing. And if your patient or client is residing in a different state, you should be licensed in that state as well. Um, and for our Medicare patients, it doesn't seem, Medicare is not reimbursing that we know of at the moment for tele-rehabilitation. Well, I did see a document said they are. Okay, so potentially. But historically, before this right. change in our routine, they were not, but this might lead them to alleviate that and start reimbursing for telepractice. Right, and likewise, if your state has a parity law, that means that the insurance third-party payers must pay for services done via telepractice if they're covered in person. The problem is sometimes people just have trouble getting that actual reimbursement. Okay, all right. Um, okay, so my next question is, uh, what populations are best served via teletherapy? Um, and kind of my hidden question in that is, are there any um, populations where it would just be too challenging to provide services via telepractice? Um, so I think this is kind of an opinion type of question, but it, you know, you have anything to add? Um, I guess just to stir things up, Joy, shall we start with you? Sure. Um, you know, I think for the type of population that I see, I don't see any drawbacks um, to it, but I, I was trying to think about what populations would be very difficult to see. And I think, you know, I'm a voice person. So if I had to do any physical, you know, digital manual manipulation, obviously that would be difficult. Um, but for the population I serve, it's been perfect. So, I, you know, I'd love to hear from others about what types of therapy, you know, everyone is doing. I feel like most things, I think we could work around. Mm -hmm. So I'm optimistic about it, but, you know, we'll see. Good. Tina? Um, I agree with Joy. I think the gender affirming voice clients are probably one of the best uh, populations to serve. All my clients are um, very high functioning. They don't have any other speech or language needs, at least that hasn't come up for me yet. Um, and they're very eager to participate in therapy. And especially living in Southern California, I think they really enjoy that they don't have to drive to a therapist and they can just hop on our chat and um, just, it's a more efficient use of our time. And the drawback being that if, if I did want to demonstrate something that was um, maybe a little bit more visceral in nature or to have some hands-on contact, that's, that's the drawback that I've experienced. Okay, thank you. And Bill, what are your thoughts? Well, I was a medical speech therapist for 29 years, so I did a lot of hands-on stuff. Um, and um, what I've come to learn is I didn't need my hands touching people as often as I thought. 
um, that I could do a lot of stuff without that, you know, and I, I also have some training in massage therapy and physical trainer. Um, so it's not that it's not appropriate. It's just, I, I think you need it less than you think you do often um, in, ter in terms of that. Um, uh, secondly, uh, I, I don't know of any adult type of communication cognitive problem that couldn't be serviced uh, at a distance in some manner. Uh, it be it dysphagia, even things like dysphagia, laryngectomy, we're not there to do the work, but hopefully you have you have another therapist there you can consult with. You can you can train, um, you can work with the caregiver. Uh, there's just a lot of ways you can do it with those populations you would think you might not. Um, one of the things about uh, telepractice is whether you ever see the person in person. So a couple of states require that you see the person in person first. We like to use in person. Uh, versus at a distance. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, so, you know, in my, I do so many workshops on aphasia that I travel a lot and, and for other reasons. So I get to see my clients a lot in person or I get to, or they, they will fly into Pittsburgh for a two, three, four day kickstart uh, intensive aphasia work uh, that I call a blended approach. And getting to the nuts and bolts you were talking about, for the most part, I agree with Joy and Tina, you can do most everything. Once in a while, there's some funky motor things that you miss at a distance, you know, um, when you get into some funky kind of uh, uh, apraxic motor stuff and habits people have. Um, so pretty much though, I think you're good to go with adults. Okay, excellent. This is very encouraging. I'm excited. <laughs> All right. So my next question is, um, what platforms work best or are functional for the purposes of providing teletherapy with adults? Um, so let's start with Joy. Um, do you want to talk about maybe like what you've used? Maybe have you used over the course of providing teletherapy? If you've switched platforms, if you use different kinds? What you've found beneficial, what, what should people look for when they're looking for a platform to use? Um, my first concern was about it being HIPAA compliant. Um, you know, I had some clients early on just say, well, can we meet using Skype or FaceTime? And those are not, to my knowledge, HIPAA compliant. They're not secure. Um, so I was looking for a web-based HIPAA compliant platform that, you know, would have all the bells and whistles you know, that I needed. It's not that they're, the other things don't have those bells and whistles. Um, so I actually use Zoom and I'm wondering if that was part of my logon problem because it kept trying to take me to my next client that I have scheduled after this. And I kept saying, no, no, I want the other link. Um, so I've had great luck um, using Zoom. Um, through the universities, I've used Adobe Connect and WebEx, and I think those are also probably in the running for um, different platforms that practitioners may select. Um, I like it because it's free. I don't want my clients to have to pay, you know, anything extra to do this. You know, part of the benefit of doing this, you know, from a home office is, you know, little to no overhead um, and, and other costs. So I like that. 
Um, I like that there's an app. Um, so I have some clients connect for our sessions using an app on their phone, on their lunch break, in their car, at their employer's parking lot. You know, so it's very convenient. It's, you know, mobile. I'm obviously connecting from a home office, uh, from a PC, but I have joined meetings personally for professional things where I'm on my phone and kind of walking around <laughs> the house doing other things if I need to be mobile. Um, so I, you know, I like some of those features of it. Um, one thing that I have found uh, a lot of my clients, so I'm doing voice work um, and Zoom allows you to uh, securely record the sessions. And I have had clients take advantage of that and say, could you send me this so I could hear it again? And I thought, oh, what a neat feature to be able to do that so that I don't have yeah. to create some extra videotape of like the voice exercises that I'm assigning for homework. You know, I can just send them the recording. Um, and sometimes I use it for some biofeedback too. Um, so that's been kind of a neat feature too. Just recently I had a client say, you know, I'm not making any progress. And so I pulled up, you know, an early session and I said, why don't you just take a look at this and, and listen? And she went, oh my gosh, <laughs> I sound so much better now. Yeah. So those are the kind of things that, you know, make Zoom uh, an easy choice for me. All right. And Tina, um, talk about what you use or the features that you look for, please. So um, I've used Google Meet through the G Suite, but I recently just found doxy.me and I really like it. It's very, very user-friendly and it creates like a virtual waiting room for you. So when you're, so it's kind of like Zoom where you send them the link and they don't need to download anything. They don't need to create a username. So when I get the client, um, when I get my client, I send them an email with that link and I tell them just click on this link on our agreed upon day and time. And I'm already in there. And then in the virtual waiting room, it'll show my clients who, you know, they pop in one after the other when it's their time. Um, I don't think it has a recording feature. I think it might have a recording feature on the pro version. Um, but I've really enjoyed doxy.me. And then it's nice because on YouTube, they have a really, um, they have a one minute video that you can send to your clients to show them how to use it. And I just, I feel like that solves a lot of problems before when I first, first started and was trying to sort things out with the HIPAA compliance software, I had used Skype a couple of times and I liked that it had the record feature. Um, so that's the only thing with doxy.me that I'm not certain of, but I have done the same thing, Joy, where I've you know, um, told clients, maybe just use your own phone or something to record yourself so you can have the session to kind of reflect back on what we did and, you know, track their own progress. Nice. I am so glad that you guys are talking about uh, that feature of being able to record it so they can go back and watch it and kind of practice again and use the session that you just did for like homework in between sessions. Um, that is not something that I thought of or considered. So like, yay, I'm learning things. I love it. <laughs> awesome. All right, Bill, what about you? Um, what do you like to use and what features do you look for? Um, first of all, talk about the recording. Remember any product, you can use a screen capture product like Snagit um, and uh, for any product. Um, well, I do two to three hour courses on platforms. So uh, I'm going to really summarize things. I was about uh, to say, condense. <laughs> if you go to everythingslp.com, everythingslp.com, there's a product there called the Ultimate Guide to Platform Selection. And what it does is it lays out 
93 possible features that you want to take a look at relative to all of this. Um, basically, you've got two kinds of video platforms. One that are basic, they give you two talking heads, maybe a chat box, um, a few features, you know, that kind of thing. Or you have the ones that uh, uh, have more bells and whistles. So the three, what I call SLP-centric video platforms are Blink Session, Thera Platform, and Theravine Network. Um, now today, apparently both DoxyMe and Thera Platform Network crashed because of the overload. Mm. Blink Session isn't even taking more business right now because they, they, they don't want that to happen. They're trying to get a better server. So the three SLP-centric platforms created by um, Mikkel and Vieta and Eric are going to have things like what we talked about, but they're going to have a whiteboard and, and Zoom would have a whiteboard. And that whiteboard you can annotate on, you can do write on, your client can write on, um, you can have control over the microphone and so on. The, the products like Blink and Thera Platform can be real time savers because you can, with Blink, for example, you can save your notes real time. Whatever you type, that's your note, it's in there. You can see your previous notes. Um, the big thing about telepractice, once you get into it, because the technology almost always works nowadays, not always, but mostly, is um, how are you going to create your materials? How are you going to store them and curate them? And how easily can you pull them up? So Blink, for example, pulls everything up within the whiteboard, meaning you don't lose videos, you're not jumping around. Um, so in Blink, you can create your materials, upload them, you can have YouTube videos, you can share your screen, all of that goes on the whiteboard. Thera Platform has their own built-in apps for kids. So that's kind of nice. Um, and so uh, you're looking at how do I save my notes? Because that can be, if you have to take five steps to save your notes versus one, it's a lot of time. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you get your notes to your client, your homework to your client? Can you do that seamlessly? Or do you have to copy it, PDF it, put it in an email, and so on? Um, so those are, you know, Blink, for example, you can click and you're recording and it's there and you save it as like Tina and Joy were talking about. Um, and I think the biggest thing is, you know, your materials, once you get going, you know, where are they? How easily can you, can you incorporate them? Okay, good. I think that uh, segue is really nicely into the next topic that I wanted to talk about was um, structuring an evaluation session um, online, essentially. So how is that different um, on teletherapy versus an in-person? Um, so let's see, Joy, let's go ahead and start with you. Hi. Hi. And tell me how you would structure, like how you've had to structure that differently than maybe doing something in person for your evaluations. Yeah, I, again, I don't see a huge difference for me. I, you know, obviously we're limited from what the camera is showing us of the client. So, you know, I may not, I may have the sense that a client is gesturing and that's something I want to be looking at, but it may be off camera. So sometimes, you know, I'll just kind of ask them to tweak the camera a little bit. Um, but it is, you know, if you're assessing communication, you know, it, it takes on a different <laughs> realm when you're, you know, making eye contact with the webcam lens versus, you know, the image of you that I see on my screen. So those kind of things I just kind of take into account. Um, but for the most part, I don't, 
I'm not experiencing a huge difference in how I would evaluate. Um, I find it just as personal, personable. Um, and sometimes, you know, I think, and I'm sure the other two can speak to this too. I think some clients are just more comfortable like this. So I think maybe if we were in person that they might be more nervous, but maybe in the comfort of their own home, or maybe they're very comfortable in an online environment. I, I find my clients to be very candid and forthcoming. Um, in terms of the logistic type setup, I have a like a dual monitor setup. So I may have materials kind of ready um, on my second monitor screen. Um, and that is a feature that I'm sure the other platforms use as well, like a share screen. So if I wanna show them a worksheet or a, you know, a, a PDF of something, I just share my screen and so we can be looking at the same document. So for example, when I'm going through the evaluation with them, if it's a written report, I will have sent it to them, but then I pull it up and share it so that they don't have to you know, sit there and flip through paper, um, look at it that way. The only other thing um, I seem to utilize for an eval is um, I do have them open a browser tab. So I tell them that ahead of time that they may, you know, if they're connecting on a device, we may need to be a little creative about how they can still see me and have the platform, you know, the Zoom screen open, but then also access um, a web page for a short period of time. Um, and I haven't run into any problems with that, knock on wood, but. Um, otherwise, it's the same, you know, same intake, same everything else that I would do if I were sitting across from them. Okay. All right. And Tina, any, how is evaluation session differently? Um, um, I agree with Joy. It's not that different because I've, I've seen clients in person. Um, I've seen clients only online. And then I've seen clients with that blended model as well. And um, the only thing that I would say is kind of different is if I, if they're with me, then I have my voice analyst app ready, and then I can take a fundamental frequency measure. But if I'm doing it in the telepractice model, then I will make sure that they have the same apps that I do. So, and I give them the direction to gather their own measurements and then give me the data, even though I have it with me just to make sure that, you know, if it's there with them, they probably are getting the more accurate measurement. Um, but yeah, I agree with joy. It's, it's not that it's not that different. Um, and then, um, I send my clients a, a client companion guide. So they have all the materials ready to go. Um, and then I also just take notes in my, um, in an email format. And again, I'm using G suite. So the communication is HIPAA compliant. Um, and I'm taking my notes there. So that's sort of like my own documentation. And then they get that afterwards as like their homework or like the results of their evaluation. All right, excellent. And Bill, um, how do you, as you're teaching folks this platform and doing this method, um, what kind of in tips and structure do you give to them? Uh, I'm sorry, in terms of what? Of doing an evaluation okay. online. Okay. Um, well, first of all, uh, I want to give a shout out to Chrissy. We've been face messaging while we're here. That's technology today. She's watching. So hi, Chrissy. Um, uh, going back to the voice work, we did some early work with the Speech Vive, VIV product, and Purdue University was doing some research. So they were really trying to get the client to have high calibration 
on their end with a microphone. So it can get tricky with that stuff. So I appreciate uh, that with Tina and Joy and they had some good ideas. If we're talking about speech language, um, it gets, gets to be a bit of a different kind of a, an issue. The, the whole area of assessment in uh, telepractice uh, is, is a mess for children, for adults, it's just a mess. We, we, it's just getting started. Um, for children, there's Q Global, they're kind of difficult to work with, but um, you, know, you can have some actual online. I mean, there's, there's actual online testing that's interactive and then there's something that's just sort of digital. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> now with adults, we know that 90, 92% of speech therapists who work with, let's say an aphasia client, don't use a formal test anyway. They use a combination of tests and put it all together. Um, so that's what we do, for example, with our aphasia clients. Uh, we'll pull up a, um, um, a rainbow passage or we'll put a picture description up. They'll describe it, we record it. It's kind of nice because we just record it and look at it and test, you know, evaluate it later. Um, we will, um, uh, we will uh, use a second camera. Let me see if I can bring it up here. So that's it. Old, it's an old Skype one, looks like a moon person or something. So you can have a second document camera that you can use. You know, some of them are stable and they, you put the book below it so you can, you can project the, the stimuli for the test. Um, and, 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 um, and the client can then respond. Now, how the client responds might be a little tricky. You, may, you might want to have a good, good e-helper there, a spouse. Um, on, on, you can put print stuff up on the whiteboard and the client can respond by pick, picking the answer. There's just little easy ways to do that. For example, Blink and Fair Platform, I think you can have a little, like, like a little game piece that they would move or they could click a, a something that would say, here's my answer. So those are some of the ways you do it. We kind of do what most aphasia therapists do. They certainly don't have time to give a Boston or a, or a Palpa. They do parts of it and mix it together. Um, I would say this, if you do that, I do not think that violates copyright law. If all you're doing is projecting something you purchased, you're not copying it, um, you know, um, we, we violate the copyright law a lot more in brick and mortar when we go to the copier and copy and use it. So I wouldn't worry about that. Um, the, uh, I think it was Temple University is working on a, on a digital aphasia test. I saw them in Orlando. Um, but again, there's a difference between being digital and it being truly online. Mm -hmm. Yes. All right, and that moves me into um, my next topic was the treatment sessions. So I'm hoping to hear a little bit about um, maybe what the structure looks like, how different might it be from an in-person? Um, do you need to manage your time differently? Will your progress be a little bit slower if it's not in-person? Is that affected it? it? Like, I have questions, so many questions. So let me go ahead and start with you, Tina, on your thoughts on the treatment session, like how you structure it to start with. Um, so usually the way I'll do treatment is I'll go into the email and pull up the homework that I had sent over to them and we'll review that. Um, and then I'll go right into warming up the client and kind of picking up where we left off to start to continue to build on the work that we did in the last session. What I tried to do to recreate that in-person 
experience is I try to be mindful of my own environment and the way that I'm kind of dressed and presented to try and highlight, like if I'm going to do breathing exercises with them, I try to not wear like a frumpy sweater just so that they can see me better through the camera. So just being willing to sort of move around the room and to stand up and like, you know, point to my own body. If I'm talking about breathing, you know, deep into the abdomen and all those sorts of things. So just kind of being a little larger than life on my end so that they're getting the message. And then I check in a lot with my clients too, uh, to make sure that what I'm saying make, makes sense and that my physical demonstrations make sense. Um, but again, I think the, the, the touch is the only missing piece, but I don't think that that really hinders progress to, to be honest. I'm, I've been pleasantly surprised at how much progress my clients have made, um, even through the telepractice model. Okay. Um, I'm starting to get some questions in from our viewers. So I'm going to kind of try to organize those. So I want to hear from Joy next and then Bill. So if you guys can give your thoughts on structuring treatment sessions. Um, actually, before we get to, oh, nope. Hey, maybe Joy, maybe you can take this question as a treatment session one. Okay. So um, such as chronic cough or VCD on Blink or teleplatform, Okay, how, how can you show your patients custom educational PDFs from Keynote on a Mac? Like if you're working on chronic cough or VCD on Blink or teleplatform without giving the patient further access or risk copying the info. So maybe are you using like a split screen or something? I hope that made sense. Um, I didn't totally follow it, but I'm not familiar with those platforms. I know Bill has mentioned those. Um, yeah, I'm not entirely following the question. <laughs> Sorry. We'll, we'll start over. Okay. Um, you know what? Just, you just go ahead and talk about treatment sessions. I'm going to figure okay. this out. <laughs> okay. Um, well, echoing what Tina said, I, again, I don't find a huge difference uh, with the treatment sessions. I'm seeing, like she said as well, great progress. Um, you know, I do use the share screen if I'm looking at materials. It's structured very similar to an in-person where we're reviewing um, what they worked on and how the week went. Session length, um, you know, can vary from a 30-minute mini session to 60 minutes. Um, and, you know, I'm just getting some feedback and, you know, just like you would in a face-to-face in a -face session. Um, the interesting thing that I have found is and this might be an issue specific to voice work, but I think the microphones are so good right now and so sensitive that when I'm having patients sustain a given vocal sound, I think the microphone thinks it's noise and it tries to damp it. I don't know if anybody else has experienced that. So I wanted to just kind of put that out there as, as kind of an interesting technological snafu, at least for my work. So, you know, after about two or three seconds, I think the microphone goes, oh, this is some weird noise. I better just turn it way down. So I can see that the client's mouth is open and I'm guessing they're still phonating, but I can't actually hear it. Um, so that's been kind of an interesting thing to troubleshoot. So I'm going to like, okay, when you're done, just put your hand up. Um, that usually doesn't happen. I'm finding it only with like, like prolonged sustained phonation. Um, so that's been kind of something interesting that I've been kind of toying with with the uh, the different microphone systems but um, 
for the most part, therapy looks just like it would if I was sitting across the table from a person. Okay. The same, the same thing happens to me, Joy. That's okay. Happens, <laughs> when that happens, I do the same thing. I'm like, I think you were still, you know, saying you're awesome. Oh, so let's do it one more time. But this right. time we've done exactly the same thing. I'm like, just give me a thumbs up to let me know you're right. <laughs> good. Okay, good. I'm glad I'm not alone. And it's just like with one isolated task, but I thought, yeah. I think the microphone is way smarter than this voice session is. <laughs> Um, I have a quick question for our two private practice um, or three private practice folks. Um, do your charges differ any, like um, Tina, you mentioned sometimes you see people both in person and on telepractice. So do your charges differ any, or is it the same fee? That's a great question. Uh, it's the same fee. Um, and then I just have a sliding scale if someone has a need. Okay, excellent. Um, the, uh, I'd like to address that. Yes, quickly. go ahead. Um, there's two camps on that. One is uh, I'm, I'm doing my time. My professional time is the same. Why wouldn't I charge the same? Which makes sense. The second, the other flip side of that coin is that it costs about a tenth to have a telepractice business that it does to have a brick and mortar, brick and mortar business. So you, you can look at it and say, well, my overhead is less. So I, I think what you look at it and you say, if my doctor, um, if she could, if, if, her cost, if her costs were cut in half, treating me and my family by telepractice, would I want her to pass that on to me? Or is it okay for her to just fold that into her business cost structure? And that's really how you look at it. You know, don't be offended if somebody thinks you should charge less if your overhead is less. On the other hand, sometimes that we just look at the overall picture and fold it in. That's what telemedicine is doing so far. Okay. All right. Um, Joy, there was a question that somebody would like to know the make of your headset. Oh, it's a Corsair. It, I think it's spelled C-O-R-S-A-I-R -S and it's um, linked in the program notes for today's session. Okay, um, and I those program notes um, because we did make a list of um, current platforms that have been kind of updated as being HIPAA compliant because even though there's some information floating around that like our government isn't going to go after people who may or may not be accidentally violating HIPAA as they're providing teleservices. Uh, we still want to do what's best and most appropriate for our patients. So um, hopefully that will become available to you guys. We have a whole list of that and other resources um, where we've been finding information as it's coming available. Um, so I have I a question. I say a little, uh, just to add on to that, I've for the person asking about headsets. I believe this is a gamer headset. <laughs> and I tried a couple of different ones. It, I, I probably started with a lower end um, headset with a mic, like a Logitech. I think I had one from the one of the universities where I was recording lectures. And I found that it hurt my ears um, after several sessions in a row. So then I switched to just using like the, the Apple earbuds. Um, and I felt like that didn't look as professional. Um, I've tried just using it through the webcam mic and I think the sound quality just wasn't as good. Um, so I will say that 
these gamer headsets, which I think people are designed for people playing hours of game, you know, they're very cushy and the, the headband is padded, um, which you don't notice when you just try it on briefly, but I'm sure Tina or Bill can attest after you have several hours in a row, like you want a padded headband and nice cushy earmuffs um, and something that's going to be comfortable for you. Um, so hopefully that's a helpful hint, but yeah, I had to, I had to try a couple different until I settled on this. And then I figured the gamers, the gamers knew what was up <laughs> with comfort. You know, Joyce, that, that's a good observation. Gamer computers tend to be better too, because if you're doing groups, they'll handle a bunch of videos at one time. True. True. I got to upgrade the CPU to handle, handle that apparently after getting yeah, kicked yeah, off today. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, Bill, I have a question for you. Um, you mentioned working with clients with aphasia and how have you augmented what you do to accommodate for cognitive deficits that might be present for older adults in a residential setting, such as skilled nursing or assisted living facility who may not be as comfortable with the technology? Well, uh, I find telepractice to be, we, we have talked about services and service uh, service session. And of course we know that our services need to be equal to uh, or surpass those done in person. So I, I sometimes I see both. In terms of working on adults with cognitive disorders, I think telepractice provides a better venue to do that. You can switch screens to that person who was wondering about how you bring materials up. You just, you save them and you bring them right up in your whiteboard on products or you share, you bring, you open it and share your screen with it. Um, you know, when I left the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in 2005 to do telepractice, I had three rooms full of materials. Now I'm lucky if I have three shelves because you just get it all up there. There's so many creative ways to go on Google images and break things up. But uh, getting back to the question about those in a, in a residential facility, um, I tend to work with people who are home, they're out, we're very aggressive, they're doing things. So when you look at that sort of overly functional stuff, you can pull up, you can pull up apps that have, that are working, that, that, that are designed for more um, uh, people in, in a nursing home, skilled, skilled care. You can pull them up, you can use images, uh, you can have the clients pick on things. So uh, I, I can't get into the details, but it's really easy to use telepractice to work on cognitive problems, almost even more so than on speech and apraxia kind of stuff. Okay. So I have another question for our um, voice therapists. So what are some apps that you use and can you still use them via teletherapy? Um, and I wanna piggyback another question that we had with that one about how do you do the acoustic analysis during your evals or your sessions? So Joy, let's start with you and then we'll go over to Tina. Yeah, so earlier I mentioned that I make sure the client can open up a browser tab. Um, I use a software program, uh, the acronym is WASP, like the bumblebee. Um, and there's a web-based version of it. So it's actually a software program that I used when I was teaching um, acoustics and voice to university students. And it will um, analyze, you know, just like any of the speech science projects that you probably remember from grad school, um, 
analyze speech samples that way. However, you can't do that very easily when the person's voice is being transmitted. So I need them to record it locally. Um, and so during the evaluation, I have them open up um, a different version. It's kind of a, I call it like the diet or the light version of the, of the software. It doesn't have as many bells and whistles, but it doesn't need to. I just need to ensure that they're doing the tasks appropriately so that they can save them. Um, so I have them open up a, a browser tab and record it locally. And then when they're done, there's maybe, let's say, six um, sound samples, and it saves it out to a, a WAV file or something. And then they zip it and, and email it to me. And then I open those files um, using the higher end version of the software. It's free. I mean, it's free for me for the higher end version. It's free. Uh, you know, my students can download it for free. My clients can open the web-based version um, and do it that way. So that's how I handle the acoustic portion. Um, and then the the other part of that question, like Tina mentioned, I have a couple of apps that I suggest that they use. A lot of times, uh, voice clients have already downloaded one or two or ten of these things anyway. So I just kind of play around to see if they have something that they're comfortable with that also works for what we're doing. Um, and like Tina said, I encourage them to have it open during our sessions. I have mine, so I'm always kind of humming and pitch matching to them. And um, I always have my app on my phone kind of out uh, during sessions as well. Excellent. All right, Tina? Um, so I, I have a couple apps that I, Again, in that initial email to the clients, I'll say, here's what I what I use and I recommend you download it. So voice analyst is the one I prefer, but it is $10. So if they don't want to download that one, voice tools app is another great one. And it live graphs the voice if it's in the masculine or the gender neutral or the feminine range. Um, it also in the app has another feature where you can pitch match. Um, I don't love that that feature but it's there's an app that I used to use called pitch and it used to be it used to have a free light version but I think they've changed it um, so I'll always offer like the best apps to my clients being voice analyst and pitch and then if they don't want to purchase those then I'll suggest the voice tools app and as long as we both have it and we're both kind of comparing our notes um, I've I have found that that has been sufficient. And I know other people will use Pratt, but I haven't used Pratt. But Joy, I want to check out the one that you're talking about. because Yeah, it's, I think it's easier. Wasp, I think is, e I can send it to you, um, is easier than Pratt. I, I think I used yeah. Pratt as a student and probably didn't know which way was up. And so <laughs> I find <laughs> Wasp a little easier. Yeah, that was the same experience for me. I've used Pratt and I just remember thinking, I'm not sure I'm using this right. So yeah. I just decided... Because to me, I think what's really important for the kind of work that Joy and I do is, yes, we're measuring. And, and to me, that is something that gives the clients tangible evidence to show their development and growth with their voice. But ultimately, they have to love how they sound. And that's the final validation to me, like we've done what we need to do here. And it kind of doesn't matter what the apps say as long as, you know, as, long as the client is happy. So I don't know if Joy, you would agree with that. Yep. A hundred percent. Yep. All right. My next question is for Bill. Um, we'd like to know what group size and length of session do you, you recommend for aphasia groups? 
Well, I want to disagree with Tina and Joy. Just kidding. We're all agreeing on everything. I just thought I'd throw that out there. Um, <laughs> Spice yeah. it up, Bill. Yeah, <laughs> uh, uh, I'd probably start at the technology end of that, and I would say, what can your computer handle, and what can your video platform handle, um, uh, in terms of that? Because if you get ten on and three of them are coming in and out, it's useless. Uh, at Aphasia Toolbox, Aphasia Toolbox is our service division, uh, our service corporation. And so we've done online groups for quite a while. Um, I started doing Aphasia groups in person a long time ago. We used to have big ones, but I'd have students helping. And, uh, so I, I think, number one, what are you going to be doing with the group? It takes a little longer for people to get kicked in and responding. So our groups, we keep them down to maybe six or eight um, at most. Um, we, we, we have our groups sort of set up for aphasia relative to those with more, who are more impaired and those who are less impaired. The more impaired, we're gonna have less people um, than, than we would in, in those that are, are less impaired. We've even done things like um, a, a Toastmasters group for those who are doing real well and, you know, again, you, you can have a bunch of people, but only so many can participate uh, at a time. So I think the, the most limiting thing is the technology. Be careful. Uh, and as we mentioned, get a, <clears throat> you, you really need to have a, a, a computer 2015 or later, because that's when they made a big change in the, the circuitry. Um, but if you're going to have 10 people on, you want a good internet, you want a good platform. Um, we're also getting questions about on how to treat dysphagia effectively and um, in home health where they're doing a lot of functional activities in the home that require moving around. How can we use this platform to reach people effectively in those settings? Um, another one was from someone who works in home health and will be working with patients along with the aides and family members <laughs> on Aphasia strategies, cognitive therapy, and more severe dysarthria. Um, so the question was, do any of the panelists have experience working with this population and providing those services um, remotely? Um, and if maybe not directly, like, can we offer up some um, ideas on making those things functional or incorporating that to what we're doing at a distance? Leanne, that sounds like a good question for you, given your skill set, right? Uh-oh. <laughs> Uh-oh, on the spot. I know, it's like, that's not fair. I'm the one asking the questions. <laughs> yeah. Well, Leanne's response is the first thing that a speech therapist does when they get onto telepractice for the first time. It's like, you know, whoa. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I, I don't, there's so much there that I don't know what to say. Um, I would say this, um, uh, first of all, um, once you get used to it, it's, 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 it's much like doing being in person. The second thing is you really need to have a, you need to have a family member or e-helper that's, that's committed to this when you, when you have somebody who's impaired. So they, you know, they almost all, you, you need to have a spouse that can be there and you need to train them, um, you know, to, to be involved. And thirdly, get them get get when i first see my clients they're like sitting back in the couch 
having a cup of coffee, smoking a cigarette and listening to music. And the next time I see them, they're at a desk, they're at a table, their feet are on the ground, their thighs are perpendicular to the floor. I mean, they're ready to go to work. So get a work, get a quiet thing behind, get your, get your good helper. We train all of our people to do our aphasia practice, you know? And I would go back to what you do in person. And that is, it's not really those couple of therapy sessions a week that count. That count. It's what you do all week. Mm-hmm. So be a really good therapist first. And then you're using, whether it's home care, uh, in a school, in a, it, it, this is just a venue, but be smart and be good first as a therapist. Yeah. I, uh, I did home health and, um, and I worked in a hospital for eight years. And if someone was to come to me and, and have me do uh, something that was outside of voice therapy, I would, I would probably first hop on a session with one person that I designate as like my on-site aid, so to speak, and just think of them as an extension of myself, train them, tell them what the expectations are, and then come back for a treatment session with that person and the client. And just like um, Bill mentioned, like come ready to work, dress well, sitting at a desk, feet on the floor, what to figure out a good time so they can be alert um, and really focus on directing the person who is your aide, so to speak, to be the one implementing and you're guiding and strategizing and getting feedback from them and then giving them really good homework to carry over. In some respects, telepractice is home care. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You guys, this was amazing. Um, we've gone through so many um, questions and so many topics and it is it is abundantly clear. We have just scratched the surface. Thank you so much for carving out time from your day, from your week to prepare for this, um, to join us here and share your knowledge, your experience and your expertise. I have learned tons. I've let that be abundantly clear. So thank each of you for joining me on this. I really, really appreciate it. I'm deeply grateful to the incredible staff of Speech Therapy PD who worked around the clock to put the teletherapy bootcamp together to address emerging needs in our field as a result of this worldwide pandemic. I hope they're taking the day off and eating a lot of cake because they've earned it. (laughs) I'm so inspired by how everyone in our community is rising to the occasion and working together to bring information and helpful resources so we can meet the needs of our patients and clients. I will continue to update the show notes on speechuncensored.com with more resources as I find them to help spread the information. Again, a huge thanks to Joy, Bill, and Tina for joining me and sharing their experience, expertise, and knowledge on telehealth. Knowledge is power, and when we share it, we're empowering our community to be more effective in these changing times. So thanks for listening, and I hope to see you back for upcoming episodes on providing patient-centered care and concussion dysphagia documentation, writing better aphasia goals, end-of-life care, and more. Follow me on Instagram at Speech Uncensored or Facebook at Leanne Porter um, to stay up to date on upcoming topics and resources.